0: mechanistically we're, we're better understanding where the where things are driving us now um and i think the larger picture at this point with bfr is not that does it work that's pretty well established it works uh is more so uh who are the populations that would largely benefit from this <laughs>
1: Ladies and gents, B-Pack here, Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Dr. Mario Novo is going to teach us everything we need to know about BFR. What's BFR? Blood Flow Restriction Training. And what the implications are, how it works, should you be doing it, is it safe? What is blood flow restriction? It's literally taking a tourniquet and tying it around your limb, whether it be your arm or your leg, and blocking blood flow to subject your body to a different type of stimulus. So what's the different stimulus? Well, you're literally blocking blood flow, thereby you're creating an oxygen deficit and your body creates a different response as though it was training in a hypoxic state. So, very, very interesting. Dr. Novo is an absolute wealth of information when it comes to the research and the protocols. And uh, this is really interesting stuff. So, you may have heard me talk with Dr. Jeremy Linicki on this. And this is, you know, 10 times the amount of information I found that we got with Dr. Linicki. Uh, and as far as the applicable information, Dr. Novo is extremely, extremely generous with telling us how to do it, what to do, and all the potential implications. Um, so, if you're someone who works out, I highly suggest you listen to this because you're going to want to do some blood flow restriction after this podcast and you're going to want to do it safely. So Dr. Novo teaches us all about that, how to do it, and some uh, effective and intelligent protocols. So enjoy the show and learn some stuff about building muscles with less stress, less stimulus, maintaining muscle with less stress and less stimulus, and also building and maintaining bone. Interesting stuff. Enjoy the show. You know, as our conversation went last time, um, you know, obviously you're a wealth of information when it comes to understanding blood flow restriction. And uh, first of all, I just like to start discussing a little bit about what's actually going on. So, um, you know, what do we know that's happening when somebody restricts blood, or what are we hoping that's happening? Do we know the definitive mechanism, or are we speculating on certain things? And uh, what can someone expect to to see when they go through a blood flow restriction protocol?
0: Well, uh, I think first and foremost, um, mechanistically. What we're understanding now is that um, hypoxia is really what is driving a lot of the adaptations, both on the side of uh, the mechanical stress uh, and strain onto the muscle, um, and as well metabolically speaking. So although we're, we're just starting to scratch the surface with understanding further, um, let's say, mechanisms that happen on the immune system side of things. So when you know when somebody performs BFR, you know, the first thing they're going to experience is obviously a rate of fatigue uh, that really comes on fast, and that fatigue is going to uh, have them feel like they're contracting just more muscle. So, you know, most of my patients and clients will tell me, you know, I've never felt my bicep, you know, contract ever that hard. Um, I've been able to connect more so with my hamstring post BFR training, and um, part of that is. You know what the fatigue is actually doing. So mechanistically, you know what the person feels has a lot to do with uh, how oxygen plays a role with energy systems. So when we are performing BFR, we obviously have a a gradual um, but very sustained shift in the availability of oxygen. So again, you know, person has a cuff. They're starting to lift, and very quickly they start to feel that it's increasingly becoming more difficult to get through you know, contraction, especially with, you know, a moderate to heavy load. So most of the time, lighter loads are being used. Uh, but that drop in oxygen um, has a direct uh, causality with increasing muscle recruitment, specifically of type 2 motor units. And um, this, this increase in the amount of muscle uh, motor unit recruitment, we know it does play a role uh, with increasing muscle hypertrophy, uh, more specifically with it inducing more stress and strain at the muscle fiber level. Uh, So although like you're moving slower, you're still producing more, uh, more torque demand on the muscle itself. And um, but metabolically speaking, that drop in oxygen uh, is forcing for these, uh, these different types of energy uh, exchanges to occur in the muscle uh, specifically that might even lead to less muscle damage, uh, which is why a lot of times people, Will initially report some, you know, some inflammation with BFR, you know, they may, they feel a little sore, but after about, you know, three or four sessions, they're like, man, I don't, I don't know why, but I can recover like super quick from each round of BFR. And we think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, um, you know, as you're performing BFR, you're also having like an uptake of fluid into the muscle. so what leads to that classic, you know, pump, uh, we know, which is called cell swelling. Now, actually Jacob Wilson has done some pretty good research on that in the past, along with uh, Brad Sconefield. I think two two individuals you've had on your podcast before. Yeah. Um, and uh we know that obviously that plays a role with hypertrophy as well, but more so might also play a role with protective mechanisms at the level of the muscle, um, in that as the muscle fills itself up with with basically plasma and fluid, um, it also drops in its ability to relax con- you know, contraction, uh, meaning, you know, you kind of run out of. A lot of available ATP. So without enough ATP, you actually cannot let muscle contract, uh, like locks from the contraction. And as a result, you end up with like this acute contracture uh, that's been noted in the literature to, uh, you know, be able to sustain torque production while at the same time decreasing like deformation at the muscle. So you can actually see a lot less muscle damage. Not that it doesn't happen, but it happens like at extremely low levels when compared to high intensity training. So I think where we are now to not I guess come back to your question more, more succinctly is that uh, mechanistically we're, we're better understanding where the, where things are driving us now. Um, and I think the larger picture at this point with BFR is not that does it work? That's pretty well established. It works uh, is more so uh, who are the populations that would largely benefit from this uh, in beyond just, you know, thinking of the, the athlete who you know wants to put on more muscle Wants to increase in motor unit recruitment, uh, maybe for timing. Uh, wants to train above the lactate threshold to better improve their chances of, uh, you know, maintaining you know high sufficient local tissue oxygenization, as well cardiovascular uh, endurance. But probably also looking at you know the aging athlete, uh, you know the athlete the athlete that has uh, you know uh, issues with you know, uh, let's say a, a joint, for example, uh, cartilage. Um, and as well as just the aging population in general or the post-injured in general that, you know, m- may very well receive a lot of benefit uh, from training in a lower uh, lower oxygen state, more specifically for, um, you know, improved function, cellular function, immune function, um, and, uh, you know, just like longevity. You know, the, the whole aspect of, of what myself and my colleagues are really like just gung-ho about is accelerating human performance. And that's really where we kind of feel all this stuff fits into, you know, fits into a category just beyond the bodybuilder, but really focused on like the human themselves. So
1: so, so mechanistically, it's mostly sounds like it's a cell swelling response. It's not going to be necessarily a um, hypertrophy response as far as, you know, accumulation of protein from mechanical damage. It's not going to be, you know, a satellite cell proliferation thing, um, it's pr- primarily just a swell- selling mechanism.
0: No, in fact, um, so what, what, we, what the mechanisms at play right now with BFR really appear to be are largely driven due to metabolic stress. But metabolic stress right. appears to have not only an accumulation of plasma into muscle, right, which you have cell swelling. So there's some sort of, um, you know, uh, threat signaling that happens to the muscle. Uh, which is why we think we also see a, sure. a rise in things like epinephrine and norepinephrine. Uh, but more, more importantly, um, the rise in something called react, uh, reactive oxygen species or ROS uh, appears to really play a role at increasing something we call interleukin six, uh, which is a, you know, pro-inflammatory marker after you like do heavy lifting, uh, which happens with mm-hmm. BFR without <laughs> muscle damage. Uh, but also something called, um, monocyte uh, chemotactic protein one or MCP one, which appears to have a large uh, role at regulating neutrophils uh, and and macrophages. So basically like we do see that your immune system has a response and we think that that is the underlying characteristic that actually stimulates satellite cells. So you do actually see satellite cell accumulation, uh, proliferation and fusion to huge levels uh, when comparing high intensity training versus light intensity training with BFR And obviously light intensity training without any occlusion at all um so no we do see uh, a a pretty significant increase in satellite cell proliferation and fusion which is why we think uh, especially as um, participants uh kind of are a little older you know bfr has really done a good job at looking at the untrained healthy young adolescents um injured but has also done a good fair amount of work starting from 2015 in the elderly population, more specifically looking at things like sarcopenia and in these groups, man, there's been some cool stuff to actually show that these, uh, these elderly people can train for like a good duration of time. And then when they detrain them, they still maintain the same, uh, rates of, uh, muscle protein synthesis and strength that they had prior. So, uh, no mechanistically it's, it's much deeper than simply just, you know, muscle protein synthesis. Uh, occurring at a local level, there's also likely a, a systemic effect that's occurring um, that can really benefit overall, you know, just just living in general, you know?
1: Very interesting. Do you know where the greatest area of research is right now? Like, curiously, I'm curious what science is kind of, what aspect or, or what, how they're looking at this, um, you know, from a performance benefit aspect or from a hypertrophy benefit aspect, like where are people putting their time and attention?
0: Um, you know, it's kind of like across the board, um, kind of divided into, like, so one area is bone remodeling. So bone remodeling is probably one of the, like, hot topics right now in BFR, more specifically because we've actually been putting tourniquets on animals for decades now after fracture and noticing that just simply decreasing oxygen into, uh, onto a bone itself that's alive uh, increases this cascade of uh, basically bone remodeling uh, fact, like growth factors. So mm-hmm. you see this activation of something called HIF1A, which uh, directly plays a role at increasing capillary networks onto the bone by this thing called VEGF. And again, you see that when HIF1A gets activated, neutrophils get on board, macrophages get on board, the body's already starting to respond to Uh, the stress, metabolically speaking, to try to literally just clean up the area, get it prepped for recovery and then start remodeling. Um, And in fact, like in in some animal studies, uh, they'll show that, you know, decreasing like weight bearing of like a rat's hind limbs um, drops something called interstitial fluid flow, which is like the gradient pressure between bone and uh, inflating a tourniquet, although the limbs are off the ground, increases IFF right back up to like close to where the animal was when they were weight-bearing. So we're even looking at the application of tourniquets in non-weight-bearing scenarios to actually increase bone uh, remodeling. And in healthy people, uh, specifically elderly people um, with osteopenia, have actually been shown to reverse osteopenia using BFR in conjunction with other regular activities such as exercise um, and vitamin D supplementation, calcium supplementation. So that, that is, that's one area that has a good amount of research going into it. As far as like on the hypertrophy performance side, um, those studies are, I mean, they're just coming through the pipeline now like crazy. Uh, my colleagues and I with uh, the BFR pros, we probably come across, I'd say, like a good five to eight papers um, every, you know, every two to three weeks and uh, it's it's a large bibliography at this point with a lot of attention, more specifically to cardiovascular benefits, um, meaning like you can put tourniquets on and walk on a treadmill and see the hemodynamic characteristics of what somebody would look like if they were jogging or running. And that's largely beneficial for somebody who can't actually jog and run, uh, or more specifically, somebody who's maybe in a hospital recovering, like post-cardiac trauma, who might actually need to have uh, you know, some additional benefit towards you know cardioprotective mechanisms, uh, specifically like you know increasing oxygen saturation onto hemoglobin or increasing mitochondrial function so that they can uh, in fact make more ATP and sustain you know sustain more upright activity. Um, and yeah, if it, it's just kind of it's an interesting place to kind of be around uh, right now because um, although, my focus in the, in the very beginning with BFR was like strictly just hypertrophy, like yourself, like a lot of us, you know, in the field that tend to uh, are just like enamored and passionate about muscle. Um, there, there's just been such this an interesting push towards, you know, the whole side of even how this plays a role uh, potentially with, you know, the future of our species off world, right? NASA has a large amount of money invested into BFR. Uh, For all these other reasons that we're discussing, not just muscle, but, you know, its role on immune support, bone, heart, uh, and even brain function, uh, potentially maybe even, you know, post-concussion, but might just be something we just use in space. Like our spacesuits might just have, you know, the old spacesuits actually just used to have gaskets that were too tight, like around the arms and legs. And the astronauts would complain they couldn't actually finish their tasks up in space. Inadvertently, they were actually performing BFR. That may just they may just have that added back into their future spacesuits uh you know as we uh follow into this new era of Mars travel, who knows, but
1: very interesting man, so th- yeah, th- the thing that comes to mind that you know everyone seems to be a little bit aware of is the possibility of negative implications, I mean, how mm-hmm. likely and how much have we seen you know people actually having blood clots or, um, you know, some type of negative, uh, response in all of these research studies?
0: Well, like first and foremost, um, probably one of the biggest things that people were concerned with when BFR kind of, uh, first started to make its way here into the U S, um, more specifically was actually like muscle damage. Like they were really concerned, like, man, is this actually damaging muscle? Cause you know, when you do BFR correctly, it doesn't feel great. You're not like, you know, with a big smile on your face, unless you're just unless you're one of like the weird people like me who just firmly understands and appreciates the value sure. of, of fatigue and I failure. We would be friends, man. yeah. <laughs> so um uh damage has has come a long way into establishing a lot of safety behind that. uh There's been m- uh, multiple reviews looking at muscle damage, and uh, bFR widely does not influence it. In fact, in many cases. It may actually protect from muscle damage, even in combination with high-intensity training um, or eccentric training, in that, again, if you deplete the amount of available oxygen and you shut off your ability to make a lot of ATP, you actually can't relax muscle. So the muscle kind of stays in this passively on-contracted state we call a contracture. And uh, although passively it can keep producing uh, torque via kind of like this passive stretch reflex, mechanically, the muscle self does not show any signs of disruption. So that's one thing that kind of got pushed off very quickly as people started to just assume, oh, you must be creating damage because it hurts a lot, and uh, and because you're going to have like a a decreased amount of force production, you know, acutely after you do it. Um, And we've established that in 24 hours you're kind of back to baseline, so you don't have this, you know, uh, classic, you know, 48 hour to 72 hour recovery process with BFR. It's actually rather fast, so your volume can go rather high and you can attribute more, uh, more gains, more specifically towards, you know, any adaptation. But as far as when it comes to risks of things like a clot, um, or, you know, having some sort of hemorrhage occurred uh, because of BFR because a lot of times people associate tourniquets with like, Oh, the tourniquet's going to make a clot. You know, that's, that's dangerous. You can get an embolism from that. Um, the reality is that tourniquets historically, um, have been used to actually uh, combat the formation of a clot so more specifically if uh you were to have let's say a stroke and it was a result of a clot that started somewhere and moved towards your brain that'd be known as an ischemic stroke and in a hospital you'd be provided something called tpa uh, which is a type of clot busting enzyme uh, that's actually secreted from your arteries themselves well interestingly enough when you deflate a tourniquet upon the deflation of the tourniquet, TPA level actually rises. So we've used tourniquets uh, in hospital settings, little inflatable booties at the bottom of a bed, um, even as uh, compression garments that are placed on the lower limbs or on the arms after surgery. Those things avoid stasis and actually promote um, t- TPA to be actually um, uh, produced endogenously from your body. So in studies with BFR, they've actually seen uh, levels of TPA release um, just as comparable as high intensity training, which is another reason why we say, you know, high intensity training does have, you know, cardio protective and uh, cerebral protective um, uh, uh, mechanisms uh, behind it. Because when you lift heavy weight, or when you exercise with a tourniquet nowadays, we understand that your arteries do release TPA, and it stops clot from being formed. So in fact, tourniquets in and of themselves pose no additional risk uh, to the formation of a clot. Uh, now in regards to like high blood pressures and tourniquets, uh, given, you know, there are definitely populations that are at risk and there are populations that are contraindicated, at least at this current time to do BFR, uh, the contraindicated populations really and truly are people that would not be lifting weights in general at all. So to not go into like a long list, uh, typically these are people that won't be in the gym. As far as the risk is associated, Uh, You know, individuals with diabetes that typically might have um, uh, kind of like weaker uh, vascular system, like uh, their connective tissue is not as strong. I know, Ben, you've spoken about like in your family history, you know, you've had, you know, family members with diabetes um, and whatnot. You know, these groups would have a risk at performing BFR, but um, the risk is still rather low when we consider looking at just the amount of people that have performed BFR uh, there's been no, no deaths associated with BFR. Uh, there's been no, inad, you know, inadvertent, um, uh, you know, ve- vessels being, you know, popped, uh, you know, like a small varicose vein or something like that might go, a varicosity might pop, but nothing, nothing severe, no embolisms have been a result of BFR, um, very low rates. In fact, like I can count them on one hand, the amount of people that have had rhabdom- rhabdomyolysis due to BFR. So the risk is actually really low when we consider a modality that has near, near comparable benefits as the high intensity training when we're talking not just about muscle hypertrophy, but when we're actually talking about immune function uh, benefits of skeletal tissue um, and then the body as a whole. So it's, it's quite frankly, an easy to use uh, modality um, that really is now kind of like, right on the cuff of becoming something big and I think beyond novel at a certain point. Um, but it's, it's just about getting the right education out there because there's a lot of different ways that people are trying to perform BFR, you know, like with emergency tourniquets, um, you know, blood pressure cuff devices, knee wraps, that's kind of where, you know, the, the safety side is really is, is probably more alluded towards the application as opposed to what the science actually shows. The science is like, it's it's pretty, pretty safe, but it's how you apply it that might increase or decrease that safety.
1: Right, so I'd love to get into that stuff as well. Um, one thing that you kind of brought up that I'm very curious about is... Um, do you see this as more of just a novel stimulus periodically for the average person or is it something that we should build in almost daily or multiple times a week or what frequency, you know, in your expertise would be most advisable for someone looking to optimize whether it be hypertrophy or, or that, um, you know, that lactic response?
0: Well, I think, um, I mean, you hit it right on the head. It's, it's all about goals. Uh, The goal itself will define uh, the frequency at which, and even the protocol at which you're going to be applying BFR. So let's kind of put it into context. Um, Let's say uh, I'm an individual who I don't work out. Okay. I don't lift weights at all. And uh, I'm getting a little older and I'm really worried about my bone mineral density dropping because I've been told to worry about that. I'm a little worried about, you know, hypertension. I'm a little worried about my blood lipid levels kind of maybe going in the opposite direction that I want it to be. And, uh, you know, I'm not a, I don't want to be in the gym all the time, you know, or I might not even lift weights at all, but I'm worried about these things. Uh, BFR might likely become something in the future for a population like this, uh, that's even applied in a passive approach. Uh, meaning, you know, you go see, so your physician says, Hey, listen, I've seen some things on your, you know, your, uh, your blood screening, some physical attributes right now. I think it would benefit if you went to go see, you know, a physical therapist or an athletic trainer. Um, And I'd like for you to, uh, you know, they're going to do some some techniques with you called blood flow restriction. And, uh, you you know, you're not really going to be doing a whole lot of exercise, uh, but these things are going to help to benefit that. So if somebody's doing no exercise and just putting tourniquets on by themselves, you can already see a decreased rate of muscle atrophy, uh, an an improvement in some bone mineral density uptake, uh, some cardioprotective mechanisms to the heart, to the kidneys and the liver. Uh, and potentially even for the brain, and that because there's no exercise, uh, that frequency can actually be quite often. Uh, meaning that could be done up to two times a day, you know, every day. Um, and in fact, in some cases where they've studied BFR post injury uh, in individuals who could not move, like they are they're limb immobilized. These guys, they've got a you know a knee immobilizer on, they're in a freaking you know a cast. Uh, they've done it up to three times a day. And what they've noticed in these cases is essentially a drop in the amount of muscle protein loss that they have and a maintenance of circulation in the limb. So that, that all by itself is super beneficial, but because there's no exercise, um, there's not a lot of, of what we call like, you know, uh, supra metabolic stress, where that's what you see when you perform BFR with exercise. So if we put it into context of, you know, metabolic stress. Passively, there's very little, but you can still receive some benefits from it. Uh, we've even seen benefits in people with like post-stroke, um, multiple sclerosis, and now even in my own you know, personal community here in Tennessee with Parkinson's disease, where these individuals are not performing exercise with BFR, but they're still having the tourniquet placed on them. And what we notice acutely with these people is an increase in uh, muscle motor unit recruitment, so like if you test them pre and post, they're actually stronger post. We think a lot of that has to do with that hypoxia potentially kind of driving uh, an acute response, like almost like an acute fight or flight response where the muscle senses uh, via these metabo receptors to the brain and says like, yo, this is, things are about to get stressful. We need to start thinking about what we're going to do. And the brain, you know, kind of says, all right, let's start increasing motor unit recruitment. Let's get ready for that activity. Almost like as a as a as a warm up to maybe what might come um, so in that regard that individual could apply it every day um, if we start to look at things like cardiovascular like riding a bike walking on a treadmill uh, you actually find that uh one round a day uh for upwards at least of like five to six days a week so almost about every day of the week can be performed safely um, anywhere from like two to 20 minutes in duration. So we call that like continuous BFR. Uh, it's meaning it's not, you know, there's not repetitions. The range of motion is, is quite consistent, but rather low compared to, you know, something like a squat or like a bench press. And, uh, that can actually be, be performed more often. So the frequency of that is, is a bit higher. I think where like, where you kind of get into, uh, the muddy waters of, of recovery is when you start applying like weight training to it. So like you've done, um, I remember what, like when you had, uh, had some recovery that you were doing yourself, I remember reading up, you had done some BFR. Um, mm-hmm. were, were you riding bike with BFR and weight training with BFR? Or what was your, what was oh, your kind I, of, I've
1: tried, I've, I've tried everything. So I've done, um, wing gates, I've done right. walking, I've done, um, every type of resistance training. I've tried, I've tried most modalities.
0: Okay. So you, you probably experienced like, you know, on the bike, well, the wind gate's a different story (laughs) because that's a beast altogether. I I actually put the Titans, uh, the Tennessee Titans through a protocol about uh, a year and a half ago now, which was kind of like a wind gate. We would, uh, we basically had them cycle at like 30% of their peak power for two minutes. And it was like a grueling freaking task. It's like, that's, that's pretty up there. But if the intensity is rather low, you can ride bike, I mean, kind of comfortably for about 15, 20 minutes, um, have a massive pump in your legs uh, and see very, you know, see actually some pretty significant muscle size uh, gains uh, as well as cardiovascular improvements, specifically to like VO2 um, and lactate. But the the biggest piece of the pie is on on the frequency and the programming side is when you do weight training. That's where it gets real specific. Myself and my colleagues, we've worked a lot this past year with individuals in CrossFit, powerlifting, bodybuilding, um, and a lot of uh, some some traditional, non traditional sports uh, like cycling, swimming, um, and then you know your standard football, American or football, right? Uh, Hispanic Central America soccer, we call it mm-hmm. here in the U.S. And in each of these programs uh, that we've worked with these athletes. Um, the the frequency really can change. So I'll give you a good example. Let's say I've got somebody who's you know bodybuilding. Uh, we can see that uh, kind of program that's more focused on, and it can change. Right, it could vary from lower pressure, higher weight, uh, scaling up to higher pressure, lower weight. Those things can can very much change uh, recruitment patterns. It can change how many reps can be performed. So the total weekly volume might alter. The rates of hypertrophy might alter. Um, And so for a bodybuilder, we might mess around with those things. We might mess around with weight and pressure to find um, kind of like a a spectrum that we can push that 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 athlete through. So it's not just a one, one route only mechanism. Uh, We kind of cover the whole gamut. It's kind of the same as if we consider, you know, going to a gym and warming up with lighter loads and working your way up to a working weight. You know, that that kind of swing through that repetition range is important because the variability from human to human, we might have, you know, a a different response at a different RPE at a different, you know, rep range. So with a bodybuilder that may, it may look like that with a frequency of maybe two uh, to three times a week. Uh, But maybe somewhere up to about like, you know, four to five exercises per body part. Uh, Maybe looking at total weekly volumes, starting off at like maybe um, uh, as low as uh, six uh, sets, six, six working sets of BFR a week, all the way up to 21 working sets of BFR a week.
1: So you'd be doing all the body part that day with blood flow restriction for every exercise.
0: So it's good to, that's, it. it is time consuming. I'll be honest with you. So you want to be like very conscientious of like where the goal is with using BFR. So for like a bodybuilder specifically, um, I always look at areas where they have the most difficulty in having the strongest, like mind, body, body, mind connection. Like, can you contract that muscle? Can you contract it? Well, if you can't, there's likely already going to be some limitations in, you know, strength and likely some limitations in overall size in and of itself. You know, the, the aesthetics of that muscles are going to look very different. You know, if you don't, if you can't contract it, how do you expect to be on stage? And then contract that muscle, right? You're not going to be able to demonstrate, you know, the full capacity of what that muscle can do from origin to insertion. So in bodybuilding cases, that's where I really like to apply BFR because it allows us to recruit almost all the near motor units that we can within that available muscle. Um, and obviously then we can focus on also having the benefits of a hypertrophic response to that area as well. Uh, so that muscle might receive direct BFR, maybe, uh, two to three exercises directly uh for the first week, maybe uh two to three times a week. But as each week progresses, uh probably include another workout or another exercise, uh, one or two additionally to the point where we get to about five or so exercises um, you know, within that session, but the days per week might drop. So we may go from three days to two days because that's a lot of metabolic stress within one session. So because the protocols right now are still kind of um like rudimentary, you've probably yourself practiced like the 30 reps Followed by three sets of fifteen. Uh, that's kind of like a traditional approach for it at lighter weights, but there's there's a lot of gray area to navigate with uh, that myself and colleagues uh, have been experimenting with in regards to moderate loading and heavy loading.
1: And how are you how are you quantifying your research? Like, so you know, for myself, it, it's relatively subjective, right? And I think I have an idea of what I'm trying to feel or what I'm trying to attain, but. You know, some days I'm doing sets of 50 on a leg press and some days I'm doing sets of 12 with the 15 seconds rest. So is there a way that you're kind of quantifying what you're doing?
0: Yeah. So, you know, when we, when myself and my colleagues approached BFR, myself, it came through a relationship that I had built with an individual who was in the Department of Defense. Um, and he had established BFR through, a, through the military um, within an area called uh, the Center for the Intrepid. And it was just very focused on limb salvage. And one of the things that he did that kind of pioneered um, standardization of BFR for me was the utilization of a Doppler. So when you utilize a Doppler, uh, you can accurately measure the amount of something called limb occlusion pressure, or LOP. Uh, So LOP is the minimum amount of pressure needed to cut off arterial flow into the limb. Um, So on your leg, it would be measured distally or or proximally, and the same as on your arm that allows us to standardize the amount of pressure needed so it's not an arbitrary amount of pressure i'm not increasing by a random number i'm increasing based off of a off an actual percentage so i know what your 100% is i can now move move down and move back up and based on the amount of percentage i can have variable effects happen so if i put you at 100% lop meaning there's very little to no arterial flow in Um, you're likely not going to be able to perform really any exercise, but I might get the caveat, the benefit that I'm going to increase a lot of, uh, of other metabolic characteristics, like specifically in the bone. So like a protocol for bone remodeling might actually use no oxygenization for a short intermittent period of time, roughly five minutes. Um, But I can scale down the percentage now where there is arterial flow and now you can actually perform exercise and the research has shown us so far right now that upper and lower extremities they actually are pretty different uh, with the lower extremities needing much higher percentages of pressure or higher percentages of LOP compared to the upper extremity so we can be much more calculated and standardized in what we do in regards that if, if I say I got 10 people and all of them were performing a squat with BFR at 80 percent of their relative LOP, everybody's doing 80 percent of their LOP so now the subjectivity between person to person, the amount of muscle mass, amount of water mass, fat density, um, all those things now become a non-issue because I have put them within a relative, so to speak, bucket. So it's apples to apples. Um, so now when we start calculating things like a percentage of a 1RM, now we can start to have a bit more standardization, how we approach BFR, as opposed to just subjectively saying, you know, on a numerical scale, you know, are you a 7 you know, a seven to eight amount of pressure. Um, you know, that, that's, it's, that's too subjective. Uh, and we know that for individuals, we might completely miss the threshold necessary to actually see, uh, enough metabolic, uh, stress to, impo- to actually impose the demand, impose the adaptation that we want. So, you know, BFR currently is, is not to say outside of the said principle, specific adaptation to impose demands, right? We're still within that now with BFR, but we can, we can much better, kind of lock in where you need to be.
1: Is is there any way of quantifying sort of a minimum effective dose? You know, that's the approach I like to take with training is like, well, what's the least I can do to get the maximum response. Right. Um, You know, I don't know if that's correct or not on mass, but that's the approach I I take and it seems to work real well for myself and people in my world. Um, And that's ultimately what I'd be looking for with BFR, right? So is there something to quantify that or is it just simply like every other training where it's, you know, subject yourself to the progressive novel stimulus?
0: Well, Right now, there's enough information out there to show that when it comes to resistance training, um, anywhere up to a minimum dosage of two times a week, um, uh, hitting somewhere between a weekly volume of about um, six to 12 sets total is kind of what puts you in a a general sweet spot. So, what what does that look like? Um, If we take the the classic BFR uh, rep scheme, 30 reps followed by three sets of 15, the first 30 reps is not actually considered your working set. So that means that every bout of BFR is always going to consist of, if we used only that model, three working sets of 15. So every exercise equals three. So in that regard, if I'm trying to hit that uh, that weekly volume, um, I'm likely going to have to perform anywhere from two to three exercises uh, each of those two days uh, for, for that week. Now, as I increase the days of week I work, obviously, the volume increases, you know, respectively to it. Um, And likely also, if I decrease the days I work, but increase additional exercises, that does the same. So there is a minimum uh, effective dosage right now, which is basically what I just mentioned. Um, But where kind of the gray area is at with it is um, understanding how much load to actually use. So like historically, they've used loads like 20% of a 1RM to 30% all the way up to about 60%. Um, and as we go into those higher uh, repetition ranges of weight, we can see that the pressure can actually come down a little bit, but we're not 100% there yet. So uh, most of the protocols now you'll see will be roughly around 20, 30% of a 1RM two to three times a week. Uh, with anywhere from two to three exercises per body part per training session with at least a day between. Um, so you do have at least a 24-hour period to metabolically recover. Because like I said, the first week that you'll do it, you actually do see a rise in pro-inflammatory um, like interleukin-6, um, tumor necrosis factor alpha. And we know that these are basically being released, they're being stimulated as a response to the metabolic stress. Uh, we we also think that's why we see this huge rise in satellite cell proliferation and fusion right at the very onset of it, um, because your body really does make the assumption that there is damage. In fact, you even see growth hormone levels and IGF one levels spike like way considerably uh, compared to high intensity training, like uh, on average of like two hundred ninety percent increase of growth hormone following bfr but it's done so specifically to help with collagen uh, synthesis so the body is really like assuming that dude you just freaking got chased by a bear or like you know you just survived the most hellacious six minutes of your life and we got we're going to start responding to it because it's just a threshold mediated response you know you you trigger the threshold boom you're in it your body's going to right at that point attempt to try to adapt to it um and where we kind of see like your to to your earlier question like should we train with this all the time should this only be used at certain parts of training i mean at this point uh, bfr has still been studied uh in sh- in like short periods of you know as far as uh you know 12 weeks w- we need further at further studies to kind of look at you know a year long training with bfr uh you know do we see a plateau effect because Quite frankly, where the research is now, we do see that uh, strength gains um, happen a little later. Uh, hypertrophy gains actually happen sooner. It kind of flips the the regular model that we typically see with weight training. Whereas you see like neuromuscular strength go up first. You'll adapt and learn how to move weight better first, and then after you know 12, 16 weeks, you'll then have an increase in you know muscle protein synthesis. And we kind of have we've always defined that because there's a lot of damage you know, revolved around that higher volume training or higher load training in that it's kind of like you dig a hole, you got to get out of it, you know, and, and, uh, like classically, like John Meadows, one of my mentors in the past, uh, who, who I write for now, uh, has always kind of put it like a, a one step back, two step forward scenario. If you're doing things right, you're always advancing. Uh, if you're digging the hole too deep or taking too many steps back, you know, you might just, you might be having muscle hypertrophy occur. Sure. But it's it's hap- it's it's happening only in regards to help you repair what you damage. You're not you're not seeing any additional, you know, building to that. Um, and so, I think if we look at it uh, in the model that we have now, um, I think it's safe to say that we could perform BFR quite regularly within our actual training. Um, and obviously, strength benefits. Look, if your if your sport is to be strong and to lift heavy loads. And get it from point A to point B, you know, in the most efficient amount of time. uh, BFR is not going to do that for you, Uh, but it could be a foundational stepping stone that you can always fall back to. So, meaning you train up to a certain point, give your joints some time to relax, switch over to BFR. But equally, we might also see because there's some early evidence to suggest that BFR, if done passively, like I mentioned before, laying down and not doing any exercise prior to heavy lifting might actually reduce muscle damage from the heavy lifting, might also increase motor unit recruitment prior to the heavy lifting, and might have some cardioprotective benefits prior to the actual you know, competition. Let's say if you're a runner, crossfitter, or whatever, might actually allow you to have improved, you know, cardiovascular function, uh, uh mitochondrial function, sufficient to actually help you perform a couple percentages better, which as you and I know, couple percentages can be winning or losing.
1: Absolutely. So one of the things you mentioned was, uh, this rate of perceived tension. And you mentioned, you know, perhaps a hundred percent on your lower body for bone improvement. Um, where should people be kind of framing their perceived tension? You know, if they don't have access to a Doppler to, you know, quantify it, where should we be aiming our, um, perceived tension of the, the, uh, of the tourniquet for band. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, my, my best recommendation would definitely be to use a pneumatic system. That means actually use a tourniquet that has a bladder, um, has a gauge that you can connect to it, uh, so that you can actually read what's, what's known as a, a millimeter of mercury. You can actually read the amount of pressure in there. Uh, the reason being is because, uh, through multiple systematic reviews, we've come to the conclusion that at least for the lower extremity, uh, a minimum of 130 millimeters of mercury is kind of that's, that's the least amount of pressure needed to actually see change happen. Now, what percentage of your LOP is that? Obviously that's hard to determine without a Doppler. Um, there might be in the future, some changes that we can use like an SpO2 monitor, but we're not there yet. Uh, so I would say definitely, you know, although people like to use knee wraps, because they're, you know, they're in, they're inexpensive, you know, they're portable. Uh, the reality is it's very hard to determine how much pressure you're putting on. It's very hard to standardize. Um, and, uh, you know, it might be sufficient for passive BFR because uh, we can see that actually knee wraps, elastic knee wraps, uh, when compared to a pneumatic device like a you know bladder with a hand, you know, handheld gauge are actually like exactly identical without doing exercise. But as soon as you start contracting against it, uh, the elasticity really doesn't have the strength to maintain consistent pressure and slow down the rate of oxygen into the limb. Nor might it have the ability to actually trap and hold back some of the um, some of the metabolites that your muscles producing that we know metabolically actually are playing a role with things like cell swelling um, and things like you know activation of satellite cells more specifically. Cause as you, as you're contracting, you know, the, the pressures in your muscle go really freaking high. Uh, I mean, you're talking about like, if you were squatting 80% of your one RM, your BP in your quad might go up to like 500 millimeters of mercury. Uh, so your quad is, is, is sufficiently acting as a tourniquet by itself. So if you just have a knee wrap on and it's not a rigid, uh, kind of uh, bladder that's designed for high pressure, uh, the likelihood is that, you know, you may just be flushing stuff in and out. It doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It's just less effective. Um, it's more of a guessing game. So, uh, I know for me personally, I've tried everything underneath the sun. I was fortunate enough when I left, uh, the military, uh, group that I was with, um, that were using a, an exclusive, uh, surgical tourniquet. That was a really expensive computer. It's awesome what it does. It's just the price point is not, uh, it's just hard to kind of put that in most people's hands. It's five grand for one computer. If you're going to do BFR in two legs, you need 10 grand. That's a lot of dough. Uh, so I started working with a company here in the in the U.S. Um, they're based out of Ohio, and they're called Smart Tools. And they actually had an FDA registered company. Uh, so I went ahead and called them up, and you know we kind of developed a, a distributor educator relationship and uh, helped them to develop uh, what came to be now their their generation two BFR cuff, which basically follows all of the same internal workings of that surgical cuff that we had. You know, it's a rigid bladder. Uh, it's a nice wide bladder so less pressure is needed that's kind of a problem like when you use like really narrow straps the the pressure has to go really really high to actually sufficiently reduce arterial flow a good example is like if i stood on a hose as i say it's like a fire hose you know those things are like mass like super pressurized um i'd have to bear a lot of weight down on this hose to slow it down whereas if i had myself you and a couple friends standing shoulder to shoulder we cover a larger surface area so the pressure in fact is lower where each of us are at and we reduce you know the flow of the hose so having wider tourniquets actually helps to reduce uh, reduce the risk of uh, of any sort of you know the real risk with tourniquets is really always your nerves you can actually strip fat off of a nerve if you put a tourniquet on too tight and in fact a lot of injuries that happen post gunshot wound or stab wound that require a tourniquet to save Life or limb typically re- result in the limb having some sort of neurological, uh, deficit. So somebody might be like, you know, a bunch of guys in the military, like I got shot in the ass or I got shot in the leg and, uh, had this tourniquet on my leg and now I have drop foot and you're kind of like looking at this thing and you're like, well, damn, where the bullet hit it, it shouldn't have knocked out that part of your foot. What the hell was that? Oh, the tourniquet was probably on so tight that they just, and it was on for so long that they basically starve the nerve and, and you don't really come back from that all that quickly or at all. Uh, so I think that the safety really is, you know, width of the cuff as best. If you can at least use a pneumatic cuff that you can inflate, you can actually see the numbers. You can standardize it at that point. Uh, there, there may still be some subjectivity because you may be like, Hey, I started off at one thirty, and now I'm all the way at like 200, but now I can't feel my toes. It's like, yeah, I'll probably back off. You're, you're probably at that. 100 percent you know, ischemic zone or slightly, slightly beyond it. But um yeah, I think if you can at least standardize it with some numbers, you're definitely gonna get a lot better, um a lot better results with it. And 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 the comfort too, you know, like I said, BFR is not really comfortable uh to begin with. So, you know, you wanna at least be able to make it a training modality uh that that you can you feel good to use on a more regular basis. Um, like like in Japan, for example, they actually have gyms that are all BFR, uh, where katsu first got started, um, and so the elderly people—that's their gym. They go there, they put their tourniquets on, they do their exercise, they leave. You know, and, and I, that, I definitely do foresee a future here in the U.S. where we are, you know, much more attentive to, uh, you know, physical screenings prior to somebody doing this. But the reality is that the safety is, is already there and it actually is quite easy to apply uh, that we can likely expand the amount of people that we can touch with BFR uh, you know, to, to better augment and lengthen their life, uh, improve quality of life, uh, decrease some of the other, you know, diseases that are related to, you know, just not having um, a very active lifestyle. Cause with BFR, you don't have to be crazy. I mean, I have people all the time that are like, dude, I had a CrossFit guy the other day. He's like, I've been in CrossFit for six years and I just did a single leg, 45 plate mini squat and my quad, I've never felt my quad, this freaking engorged with blood. I've never felt it contract that hard. That's cool to hear that from somebody who's been in the sport for so long. They're pretty well seasoned to lifting heavy loads. Um, so, you know, it's... I definitely foresee us being able to apply BFR more kind of uniformly as long as we're, you know, helping to standardize it. Cause then it becomes, it's easy to flag out people who shouldn't use it. You know, like with anything you, you want to make sure you can get the most bang for your buck and reduce the risk at all possible because anything weight related just always has an inherent risk to it.
1: Absolutely. Now, the one thing we haven't talked about that I think we absolutely must is relative placement. So, you know, is it, you know, if I'm, tra- if I'm training my arms, is it the top of the bicep and the tricep? Is it at the top of the entire arm, like above the delt, um, you know, on the leg? Is it, you know, if I'm training my calves, is it whole leg or, or, you know, just walking us down the framing of that?
0: Well, the, the current agreed upon uh, places to apply it are the upper arm or the upper leg. So although people are like, you know, I'm going to work out my form, it, I guess it makes sense to put it around my elbow or just below my elbow, or if I'm going to work my calf, I'm going to put it you know, just below my knee joint, the reality is that um, at the proximal, that means the closest part of your arm to your body or the closest part of your leg to your body, uh, we have very large arteries and very large veins that basically feed the entire limb um, flow and remove obviously deoxygenated blood and waste. So the placement uh, at this point should be very standardized. Upper body, you're going to want to place it as close as you can into the armpit, or on the legs as close as you can up into the growing. Obviously, some of our male listeners might need to move the boys out of the way. You know, that can happen, uh, especially if your quads are bigger. You're going to feel like a cowboy walking around, like you're sitting on top of a saddle. Uh, but those are the the proposed areas of, of safety uh, and also effectiveness because you're able to get a large branch artery or large branch vein. Uh, one of the reasons you actually wouldn't want to put it around your forearm or around your lower part of your leg is because you have nerves that are way more exposed that can more easily be pressed up against bone. And like I mentioned before, one of the biggest risks with tourniquets is always injury to a nerve. Um, The last thing you want to do is inadvertently with, you know, with the goal of improving, you know, performance, accelerating performance actually hurt yourself.
1: Dr. Nova, where can everyone find out more from you about BFR? Because obviously, we've just started to scratch the surface, and I'm sure there's some really cool stuff going on right now, especially if you continue to do this week on week research yourself. Uh,
0: so, right now, uh, they can definitely head over to uh, theBFRPros.com. Uh, that's a, a collective site where myself, two other colleagues that are also physical therapists, we're like, we're, we're nerds who like to lift weights. And, uh, and, and our, our kind of our mission statement has been, you know, accelerate human performance. Um, and we, we're really focusing on that through a a myriad of different applications. BFR just happens to be one of them. Uh, but people can head on over there. Uh, there actually is an ebook, uh, that you can download, uh, that is kind of a lay, uh, a layman's approach towards BFR. There's science in there. There's, there's uh, a whole reference of papers if you wanted to read them. So, you know, it's, There's good scientific evidence, but it does read very much like a conversation. Um, There's also, you can buy the BFR cuffs from there. Uh, Like I said, we are distributors for smart tools. Uh, We do have our own special kind of like in-house, you know, sales on cuffs uh, that we have and promote kind of throughout the year. Um, And as well, we sell BFR templates. So it's been kind of like one of the biggest um, drivers for what we do because we've just been fielding BFR questions for like two years. And we've had a lot of like big name athletes, celebrities within different sports, professional sports, uh, hell, even the WWE, uh, come and ask us questions about BFR and how to apply it, you know, strategically within their sports. So we started to say, you know what, let's start developing some templates. Uh, let's maybe open the door throughout the year to some one-on-one programming that we do. It's a little bit different on the side, but, uh, the templates are really where we're trying to push kind of 2019 to have, so people can feel like. Yeah, you know, I can grab a template. If I've got some cuffs, cool, use them. If you're in the market to get some cuffs or, or cuffs that we really stand behind and, and, uh, uh, kind of validate in their effectiveness. They're built, you know, through various different tourniquet research studies. Uh, you can pick them up from there. Um, and then, you know, obviously we have all of our social media that follows the same handle at the BFR pros on Instagram, uh, and on Facebook. And, uh, you know, we, we try to bring the level down to where people can understand it, but we classically still have a lot of nerds like us that want to find out some of the in-depth things. So uh, we do a lot of infograms to try to help bridge that knowledge gap and uh, just keep people safe. You know, Accelerate Human Performance is really what we stand for. Um, we want people uh, to really understand uh, the, the safety of BFR, but that it is an easy-to-use modality when applied correctly. Um, and really the sky is kind of the limit right now on where we're approaching it in terms of age populations, uh, and sports to receive benefits. So, um, yeah, they can head on over there. If you needed to email me, you can email me at Mario at the BFR Um, and if you were local, like in Tennessee or nearby, if you wanted a consultation or whatnot. Uh, my actual company is called the lifters clinic. And, uh, I see patients pretty much on a regular Monday to Friday basis. Uh, so I still have a foot in the door, you know, working with people, foot in the door on research. Uh, and then this, the BFR pros, man, this is just my passion. Uh, much the same as what you do with MI40, uh, which I've been following for a long time, man. I remember buying like one of your first MI40 packets. So it's it's been a real pleasure. Thank you to
1: very much, man. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah, of course. It's been a real pleasure to to be on the show, uh, to chat with you. I told my wife uh, last night, I was like, man, I'm going to get to chat with with Bpack today, and she was just like, "That's so cool to have that, to have that happen in your life." So, yeah.
1: Hey, man, it's an honor for me. Um, and you know, there's nobody out there that I've come across yet that's anywhere near your level with BFR. So, truly grateful. I mean, um, this is something like I said, I've used for a long time, and uh, I kind of put it on the back burner for a while. But it seems like, as far as efficiency of time, efficiency of, of end result. Um, you know, it'd almost be silly not to introduce it at some level. Mm -hmm. Well, man,
0: I got to get down there, dude. I got to get to Tampa. Got to get some, some of these cuffs on you, leave them with you. And, uh, and have some fun, yeah, well, man.
1: I, I will, man. I'll, I'll check out your site. I mean, if, if you've got the best ones and you put your name on it, I'll check it out and I'll pick them up for the gym because, um, you know, if it's something that um, has this much data behind it, we have such a – we have an interesting cohort here, right? So I don't know if you know what I've done with the gym, but we've got 100 members and we've kind of used them as a research study almost. So, you know, we kind of have our finger on the pulse for everybody in the gym, whether it be helping in some way in their training or their nutrition or their, you know, everything, the transformation. So if we could introduce, you know, say – 25 uh cuffs to 25 different people uh and just almost use it like a research study it's you know kind of a cool little opportunity
0: for sure and we actually have that uh that kind of same model interestingly enough uh we've had some other people reach out uh that have a very like small cohort of athletes they work with where they track everything with these guys uh mm-hmm. to the point where it, i think it was yesterday i would posted a picture from uh, one of our guys that we work with through Atlanta uh that does a lot of work with some top uh CrossFit athletes. And uh he was using some oxygen muscle sensors. And uh just like like his response to us was just like, boys, you were right on the money. This is exactly what it's doing. And it was so cool to see that. Um and obviously, you know, like like you like yourself, uh, you know, we're all cut from this cloth of just having this this innate sense to, you know, want to be inquisitive, to want to ask. Uh we simply don't want to just execute. We want to understand why we're executing. Uh, c- sure. cause that, that mindset process behind it, uh, is what develops basically the integrity and the fortitude to get through, you know, what's ahead of you is, especially if we're talking about, you know, something like weight training or sports performance or athleticism, uh, it's not what happens, you know, from, it's not what happens on Monday. It's what happens every Monday of every week of every month leading up to that ultimate goal. And, uh, you know, connecting those things with research, I think it's just, uh, it's a beautiful time to be in because of our accessibility to it. And the fact that we can actually perform these things, you know, with within our own clinics. I, I remember when I was in the research lab, I was, I was always so just infatuated by everything happening around me when I was in uh, Florida International University. it's kind of like where I started. And uh, to see where things are at now, where tech is at, how affordable things are, and then obviously working with people like you, it's just like, it's a dream. Uh, it really is it's fun
1: <laughs> yeah man your, your passion your passion shows through for sure man and I'm so grateful because there's not enough people in the world or at least not yet that I've come across that are as passionate about one thing right A lot of people are passionate maybe in general in life but don't have their precise focus and uh, you know a focused person with that your passion is, is um, you know a huge asset to the world.
0: Well I think I do appreciate that man it's it's uh, <laughs> it's gotten me this far in life. So I, I think I'm doing, I think I'm I doing, doing something it, right. Yeah. yeah. Don't
1: ever change. <laughs> Dr. Nova, thank you so much for your time, man. I'm truly grateful oh, thank you, ben. and uh, we'll definitely make sure we direct people to your site, uh, for your amazing wealth of information. Thank you so much for tuning into muscle intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person, you know, make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode.